When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The more we learn about COVID-19, the more questions and worries we have. CalHOPE can help with free COVID-19 emotional support. Call 833-317-4673 or live chat at calhope.org today. Look through your children's eyes and you will discover the true magic of a forest. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. The Laundronauts, a potentially untrue tale based on actual events. A young boy is shoved into a washing machine and vanishes. His friends try to rescue him, only to discover a magical world beyond the machine. Season one stars Ed Asner and me, John Cameron Mitchell. Find J.D. Belzell and bring him back home safely. Listen to The Laundronauts on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Galling. Mystifying. I think I would get me to a nunnery. I mean, I I would go and do penance, you know, go work for some nonprofit in the art world for the rest of my career and try to atone for whatever had happened. In the grim aftermath of the closing of the Nodler Gallery, 10 lawsuits were filed by cheated customers. Most notably, Domenico and Eleanor de Sole. Their saga began with a shriek in a Miami hotel room after reading the story of the fake Lagrange Pollock in the New York Times. Most former customers of the now shuttered gallery just wanted to recoup their losses. Investigators concluded that no fewer than 60 fake paintings had been created at the direction of Glafira Rosales. At trial, an accounting expert would testify that Friedman and dealer Julian Weissman had sold their clients $70 million in fakes, yielding a net income of $33.7 million for Nodler and generating more than $10 million in commissions for Anne. This was in addition to her salary, estimated to be $400,000 annually. Michael Hammer took his own $400,000 salary, plus 20% of both galleries, a near limitless fund spewing cash to 831, his private holding company. As for Rosales, no taxes had been paid from her sales to Nodler, so profit estimates varied. The New York Times would later declare that Rosales had taken in about $26 million from her sale of paintings to the two dealers. That was all money that would have to be disgorged, along with some $12.5 million due to the IRS. Surprisingly, one of the first to settle was Pierre Lagrange himself in October 2012. 
shouting from the rooftops had earned Lagrange some admiration, but also his share of ridicule among collectors for buying a painting without doing due diligence. He had vowed to get his $17 million back, but Artsy, the online art magazine, published a rumor he'd settled for $6.4 million. Being first in line for a refund had its advantages. There was likely more money in the gallery's till to be had. The de Soleil's, by contrast, felt bound by a sense of mission. Their lawsuit was aimed at making the truth public in a civil trial. Having a judge and jury declare Glafira's forgery ring to be nothing less than a racketeering conspiracy was the real prize for them. Assistant District Attorney Jason Hernandez was taking a very different approach. He was trying to make a criminal case of the Nodler's dealings. Surprisingly, it was far from a slam dunk. What we were doing previously is sort of your art fraud 101 playbook. You've got to prove that the paintings are fake, and you've got to prove that someone who sold them knew that they were fake. But it was very clear that this was going to be especially difficult following our usual kind of playbook in this case because, well, there were an unusually large number of prominent people who seemingly were going to stand by the paintings and say that they were real. That is uncommon. And I could see right away, well, you know, how do you get over that? Because if the person selling them is showing them to all of these esteemed people and they're saying, yep, looks right to me, looks good to me, that's not a criminal case anymore. You're not going to be able to prove fraud that someone intended to deceive because they'll say, well, you know, this museum director said it was good. And I mean, you know, Anne Freeman bought one of the paintings. It was well thought out. The truth is, all of the experts declined to authenticate the paintings in any official capacity. They'd seen them in passing on the Nodler's walls at cocktail parties, but none of the experts had any interest in testifying. You got to remember it's it's a criminal case, so you have to prove your case to 12 people beyond a reasonable doubt. We weren't really getting anywhere with the conventional investigative, you know, methods. And the provenance was very difficult to disprove. Glafira Rosales, we know virtually nothing about. She told Nodler and Ann Freedom that she was a broker, representing a family that she wouldn't disclose. And I can't get her to disclose it, so I can't issue her a grand jury subpoena and say, tell me the name. She would just assert her Fifth Amendment right and refuse to tell me. My thought was, I can kind of through the back door figure out whether or not Glafira Rosales represents a family that owns these paintings, because If she's lying about that, that is going to be a crime that I can charge, okay? Because that's a very important part of the provenance. Imagine if she's lying about this actually being a European family that bought these and stored them over all these decades. Well, that is something I can charge her with. So she says she's a broker. She says the paintings are not hers. I could see that all the money would go from the Nodler Gallery, once they would purchase them, to a couple bank accounts, I think two or three, in Spain. So my thought was, I'm going to ask Spain, with a, we have a treaty with Spain, to, for their bank records. And then if she is a broker, I'm going to see uh, 90% or 80% or whatever percentage go to the family in Europe. And it's going to go to a bank account in some other country probably. And then I will ask that country to give me the bank records. 
and you might prevail there. You might actually get foreign banks to cooperate and give you records that would prove that she had been engaged in financial shenanigans. That's right. Let's see where the money flows. So I took that kind of old approach, okay? You know, follow the money to the sexier world of art fraud where you follow the pigments and those sorts of things. And what it showed was that she was lying about who owned the paintings. She owned them, someone else owned them, but she's keeping all the money. So that gave me a fraud charge against her. Okay, you are falsely representing to the Nodler Gallery that these paintings belong to, you know, and then fill in the long story, what she told, all that, that yarn she spun about who it belonged to. I now have leverage against Glafira. I have a criminal charge. It's a lot of money, you know, many millions of dollars of paintings. So it's a significant fraud. And then on top of that, she is not reporting any of this money as income. So there is a tax charge there, nor is she reporting the fact that she has foreign bank accounts in excess of $10,000, which is another federal crime. So now the deck is stacked way high against Clefira Rosales. She's kind of got nowhere to run. I have very simple, provable, direct, strong criminal charges against her. And now I can kind of use that as pressure um, to get her to talk unless she's willing to spend, you know, a lot of time in prison. One night early in the summer of 2013, some 18 years after Glafira's first fateful meeting with Anne at a Soho art gallery, law enforcement agents came crashing through the front doors of Carlos and Glafira's multi-million dollar home. It's very traumatic. <clears throat> they came actually to wake me up. It was very early in the morning, at six in the morning, around the time, and there was a squad. I was sleeping. Uh, my daughter was upstairs, sleeping. She was supposed to go to Spain the next day, or that day, in the evening. And they knocked at the door. And they told me that they were the police and opened the door, and I saw them you know, with their weapons. And uh, and I said, can I put something on it? And they say, open it, open it, or else. Of course, I opened the door. I saw them running all over my house uh, with, the, with the weapons pointing everywhere. Uh, and then they took me. And I wanted to give a hug to my daughter, so they didn't let me. Oh, so it was horrible. We'll be back in a minute. I'm Emmy Olea. On this podcast, I'm taking you on a search. A search for love. Emmy, 24, hardworking Latina, seeks cool, down-to-earth guy. Swipe, swipe, swipe. It's hard out there for a girl. To find Mr. Right, I've had to meet a lot of Mr. Wrongs. He'd invite me over to have dinner with his family. I knew he didn't tell them that I was transgender. Dating as a trans woman can be complicated, but there were other reasons I felt like I couldn't always be myself. He's asking me things about my family. Like, my mom's in prison. My grandmother was arrested for working with the Mexican drug cartel. This is Crumbs, my love story. 
It's a show about the things we settle for and the bits of ourselves that make us who we are. Listen to Crumbs as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sir, we got your test results back and... Give it to me straight, Doc. You have to listen to the Ridiculous News podcast. Ridiculous News? The podcast? Ridiculous News? It's a podcast hosted by Bill Worley and Mark Kendall. Ridiculous News. Those two comedians who's worked with Adult Swim and Comedy Central? Yeah. I knew you were my favorite patient for a reason. Well, you're the best doctor I've ever had, and they're hilarious. I love their videos. Bill's actually my cousin. They talk about the news, but not like in a depressing way. You know what I mean? They did an episode on April Fool's. Great. Well, you need to listen to it. When does it drop? March 14th. Get it wherever you find podcasts. Oh, like in a cereal box. Well, no, that's not where you find a podcast. Oh, so like in the middle of a tree. No, do do you know what a podcast is? Yeah, it's like, it's like a kind of tire. No, no, it's, it's, it's something that you, you listen to podcasts. Oh. Yeah, so listen to the Ridiculous News podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The produce aisle. Absolutely not. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Dutton. And I'm Elizabeth Dutton. Oh, wait, sorry. Zaren, do you want to say your name? No, I'm good. Go, go ahead. We're the hosts of Ridiculous Crime. People love true crime, right? The mystery, the intrigue, the human frailty. Totally. But what a lot of us don't like is the blood and the guts and the mayhem. Wait, 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 wait. Some of us do like the mayhem. Uh, okay. But let's be real. There's nothing funny about murder. Okay, that's right. Our show gives you stories like the kidnapping of Frank Sinatra Jr. and the Max Headroom signal hijacking. Oh, so you mean ridiculous stories like the UK cat shaver and Pablo Escobar's cocaine hippos. Yeah, stories like the dudes who stole Buzzy the animatronic whatever he was from Disney World and the woman whose husband tried to kill her but came back from the dead and surprised him at her own funeral. Yeah, that does sound good. You can find this new podcast, Ridiculous Crime, all over the place. The iHeartRadio app, the Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't know how you live. Ridiculous Crime. Brian Scarlatos, Glafira's attorney and family friend, took the call while out of town on a work trip. I recall because I was in Las Vegas for work, and my wife called to say that Glafira had been arrested and that there was a story in the newspaper, which, you know, I looked up on the internet. And, um, and you know, at this point, Glafira had been a friend of ours for a while, so I felt like I should look into it since, you know, it's, it is kind of my area of the law. Glafira had just been arrested, and so um, we had to go into to jail to speak to her. But what we found out is, is that she had really been arrested for tax evasion, sort of like Al Capone, when the government couldn't get him you know, for organized crime, they just followed the money. And in Glafira's case, the government was able to follow the money. By now, after living in Sands Point for years, had you come to suspect Glafira and Carlos might be art thieves? I did not suspect anything. They did seem to be very successful, but it was extremely shocking. And, it, you know, and it, it's shocking whenever you hear about anybody being arrested, but certainly a very nice woman in her, you know, later 50s, like Glafira. Brian visited Glafira in prison soon after her arrest. It was a sobering moment for the family attorney, who had come to know Carlos and Glafira well. You go in, and it's very difficult to get in. And Glafira had just been arrested, and in fact, she didn't have enough money for shoes because they take your shoes away, and you need a commissary account then to buy shoes. And so she was wearing paper slippers, and was very, very distraught. You know, just didn't know what was going to go on. Carlos had 
you know, fled. And so her daughter, her young daughter, is on the outside with no parents. I mean, Soli was maybe 20 years old, maybe 19 years old at this time. It's hard to overstate just how lucky Glafira was to have such a family friend who was an experienced attorney at this moment in her life. After she was arrested, I offered to help, largely on a pro bono basis, because all of her assets had been seized at that point. Basically, what we were able to do was explain to Glafira how this was going to play out, that the government had, you know, a strong case on the tax evasion charges, and that carried very significant penalties. Once behind bars, the first order of business was for a judge to determine whether Glafira Rosales was a flight risk. We put together, I thought, a very persuasive case that Glafira, you know, had dual citizenship, a boyfriend with a home in the Dominican Republic, ties, I believe, to Spain, foreign bank accounts, a lot of liquidity, a lot of assets, you know, at the time. And I'll say it was by no means certain that she would be detained because on the other side of the coin, I mean, she's never had a criminal case before. She was, you know, maybe 50-something-year-old woman with a daughter here in the United States. And so the defense made an argument, a strong argument, that, hey, you know, she's not going to go anywhere. Why would she go anywhere? She's got all these ties. But thankfully for us, the judge detained her. And although I can't say for certain, I would think that being detained would weigh on someone and make them more likely to want to cooperate and tell us what really happened. The judge said, no, I'm, I'm going to keep you detained because I think you've, you, you are a flight risk. And so, you know, that was it. She, she went back into the MCC or the MDC, one of the two facilities that, uh, that are, are used. Those are pretty rough institutions, aren't they? Uh, yeah, uh, you don't want to be there, trust me. She was not in the, the most difficult spot where like the terrorists and Bernie Madoff go, but uh, no, you don't, you know, you don't want to spend any time there if you can, if you can help it. A few months in prison was all Glafira needed. The con was over, and there was no one worth protecting at the cost of sacrificing her freedom. Glafira decided to cooperate. And she provided information about Carlos and about Peixen. And after it was clear that Glafira was telling the truth, the government agreed to release her on bail. Rosales spilled the entire story to investigators. In September 2013, she pled guilty to nine counts including one count of money laundering, one count of wire fraud, and three counts of falsifying income tax returns. She had pocketed $26 million and paid no taxes. Despite her testimony, Glafira was facing as much as 99 years in prison. But this was only the bail hearing. The sentencing would come much later. You know, as we later learned, because of her cooperation, and really only because of her cooperation, we've got the two Bergantinos brothers and Paishen, you know, involved. And, and that really broke down the door, okay, to a wealth of information that only came from her. But as, you know, most people know, Paishen, as soon as he heard that we were on his tail, took off to China, right. a country that does not extradite its own nationals. I'm personally much more upset with the, the Spanish court's decision to not extradite the Bergantinos brothers. Amazingly, from a criminal standpoint, things were looking good for Anne Friedman. 
If we thought that we could prove beyond a reasonable doubt to 12 people that other people knew the aspects of the scheme, the critical aspects of the scheme, then we would have brought a case. But, you know, you got to have proof. You got to have proof that's admissible in court that, you know, someone who is selling the paintings, whether it's Glafira as the consigner or Anne, you also have to prove that she knows that they are fake. Mm -hmm. So, you know, here you're dealing with a situation where Anne Friedman's first point of contact, Lafira, is lying to her about the provenance. And again, the provenance has elements of it that have elements of truth. You know, Osorio was a real person, Herbert was a real person. It is actually the case that a lot of art is found, you know, from time to time. What we did in this case was we took it as far as we thought the evidence that we had would take it. Glafira had done her part and broken the case wide open for investigators. The Bergantinos brothers fled the United States for Spain, a country beyond the reach of U.S. extradition. The artist Peishen Quan hurriedly returned home to China, another country out of reach from U.S. authorities. That left only Michael Hammer and Anne Friedman. Neither would be prosecuted on criminal charges. There simply wasn't enough proof. But... Both were still subject to civil suits, where a jury only needed to conclude that a defendant was more than 50% likely to have committed a crime. Monetary settlements from civil suits could inflict their own kind of severe punishment. The fear of such verdicts had led the Nodler to settle with Pierre Lagrange. As for the Desoles, their showdown with Anne Friedman and the Nodler was about to begin. Some three dozen journalists, including our own Michael Schneerson, were bent over their notepads that day in the classically high-ceilinged, oak-paneled courtroom. The trial began on a Monday in January 2016. The list of names who weren't present in court that day was almost as interesting as who was. Glafira Rosales wasn't there. Having served three months in jail before admitting her guilt, she was now agonizing over what further sentence she would have to serve and wondering how she would come up with $80 million in compensation for her victims. The Bergantinos brothers were still in Spain. Quan was in China. Even Michael Hammer was absent in court. Hammer had not appeared once from behind the Nodler doors since the gallery closed, nor granted any interviews. But after 18 years or so of the forgery ring, Michael Hammer looked more and more like a key player, no less so than Ann Friedman. As much was told in a lawsuit filed by one of the victims, casino owner Frank Fertitta III, who in 2008 bought a fake Rothko for $7.2 million. Hammer, the complaint detailed, knew that Nodler bought the paintings from Rosales for shockingly low prices and quickly resold them for enormous markups. Fertitta alleged, quote, in all, Nodler resold the Rosales paintings for a total of $63.8 million, realizing gross profits of approximately $48.7 million. Hammer, acting on behalf of Nodler and his foundation, 831, saw to it that tens of millions of dollars in profit be distributed largely to himself and Ann Friedman through 831, unquote. 
Friedman and Hammer had a meeting in the early days of the scandal, and a handwritten memo survived their talk to surface later in Fertitta's complaint. It was unclear whether the notes were taken by Friedman or Hammer, but the sentiments were in technicolor. Discreet sources are my stock and trade, went one of the comments. Don't kill the goose that's laying the golden egg, went another. And I am not going to change my way of doing business. If you are not comfortable, step away. Anne Friedman was in the courtroom the day the DeSoles trial began. She sat quietly beside her lawyers, wreathed in her soft white curls, dressed in black, beige, and gray, saying nothing as the witnesses began to come forward. She, too, would be forced to testify if the trial went as planned. Luke Nickus, Anne Friedman's lawyer, had a novel defense, as it turned out. He argued that the DeSoles were responsible for checking their paintings' authenticity themselves. They were, after all, sophisticated art buyers. By that logic, Nikas suggested, the jury shouldn't blame Nodler for selling the DeSoles their fake art. The customers were the ones to blame for buying it. As for Anne, she was a salesperson, not an expert, they declared. She was just doing her job, selling paintings and earning profits for the gallery. Here's Luke Nikas. With Anne, I certainly wanted to believe, but, and then I looked at the evidence, what did the evidence show? And what the evidence showed to me, separate and apart from what Anne was telling me, was emails from a guy like David Anfam, one of the most significant experts in abstract expressionism. What did David Anfam say about these works? He wrote an email in May of 2008 to Jack Flam, you know, from the Daedalus Foundation. And that email said, I can't think of any reason to deem this Newman from the Rosales collection, this Newman inauthentic. He went on to say in the same email, I've seen the Krasners, I've seen the Pollocks, the Rothkos, the Kleins, the Stills, and I believe in these works. Now, he acknowledged that the story was murky, acknowledged that the ownership was unknown, but the reality is I saw an email like that from David Anfam, and I thought, if David Anfam's saying that, who am I, the lawyer, without this expertise? Let me dig further. I think it's important to understand what I concluded about whether they were authentic or not wasn't the point. My point is I, I had no expertise in whether they were authentic or not. The core question always, always, always was what did Ann Friedman believe and what did she have reason to believe based on the facts? Early in the trial, attorneys for the plaintiffs presented a fascinating exhibit to the court, the DeSoles $8.3 million fake Rothko. The thing I remember about it being physically in the courtroom the most is that the defendants immediately wanted a sidebar with the judge because they felt that the painting smelled new. <laughs> this is the DeSoles attorneys again. I think the issue was, like all artwork that's transported responsibly, it was in a wooden crate. So the wood was just secured with screws and the crate got unscrewed and it creates that kind of wood smell in the air, which made the painting smell like fresh wood. And so they felt it was prejudicial that the painting would smell so obviously like fresh. <laughs> and the judge had to go over 
they, and smell the painting to assess. <laughs> and, and he was like, I, he said on the record, he was like, I can't believe I'm going over to smell the painting. <laughs> and then he trudged over. He smelled it, and I think they did move it. I think yeah, he moved yeah, it. Yeah. But, but they um, left it out. For yeah, no, to they see left it out. But I thought, I remember it was very dramatic. We carried the painting over someplace, and you know, there was like a hush in the room, <gasps> more like a gasp, because People in the art world are so used to such delicate handling and white glove handling of works like this. And, you know, it was a fake. So we just picked it up with our bare hands. We're not professionals. <laughs> there was the other moment, the funny moment with the painting when Polkari said on the stand, like, I think it's supposed to be the other way. You know, like it's upside down. Stephen, Stephen Polkari was one of the two quote unquote experts who Nodler had hired and paid yes. to look at some of these works. Yes. And when he testified about the Rothko, he testified that he did, couldn't usually tell with Rothko's which way's up. A day or two into the trial, the de Soles took the stand to tell the story of their fake Rothko. Eleanor was emotional, Domenico fierce. Both were heartfelt, taking breaks to chat up the press, but they would find themselves subject to the occasional bit of snarkiness for bringing rich people's problems into the courtroom. With the de Soles done on cross-examination, the trial turned to Anne Friedman's list of 11 experts whose names she had used to authenticate her paintings. None of the 11 had wished to be on that list. What emerged was what we showed at trial with the witness testimony that there were no experts who authenticated these paintings for Nodler. It just didn't happen. You know, the story that the defendants were selling, that they believed the works were real and the experts authenticated, that was just absolutely rebutted, totally debunked. With respect to David Ampham, he never was shown a Rothko, despite being the world's leading expert in Rothko. I don't think it's a coincidence that he was never shown any of the Rothkos. Not one. Not only had I not seen the Dasoli painting, I'd never even been in the same room with it. What I got was a package with a transparency for painting, a note from Anne dated July the 25th. And I'm pretty certain this was 2005. I picked it up looked at the transparency for about 20 seconds and put it in the file, filed it away and did not look at it again until then. That's the time of the trial. It sounds as if Anne was doing her best to circulate your name and your approval of this painting. Is that true? Yes, it's true. I didn't know at the time. I have to say that from the perspective of the present, I felt I was being manipulated. I don't take kindly to that. And when I saw the letter, which had a list of people who had seen the de Soli painting, starting with Christopher Rothko, followed by myself, I was absolutely shocked. I couldn't believe that my name had been put in a letter without my knowing it, without my approval, and effectively, to any buyer, it could be constituted as a kind of authentication by proxy. As the trial entered its second week on February 8, 2016, a sense of excitement permeated the courtroom. 
after all this warm-up, Anne Friedman was due to testify at last. Oddly, however, the judge's chair remained empty as the 10 a.m. hour came and went. At last, the judge reappeared and announced in open court that a settlement had been reached. From the DeSole's grins, their gambit had paid off. As for Anne Friedman's lawyers, they looked relieved. Whatever they had agreed to pay, it was probably less than the $25 million RICO payment that the DeSole's were demanding. The trial, however, would continue because Michael Hammer and his 831 Foundation were not yet off the hook. Hammer's chief financial officer testified that Hammer, her boss, had awarded himself some 20 luxury cars, including a $482,000 Rolls-Royce and a $520,000 Mercedes. That was all in addition to a $400,000 salary he paid himself from his Nodler piggy bank. Anne was scheduled to testify that Wednesday against her former boss about how much the two of them had profited from selling 40-plus fake paintings that had come through the Nodler. Once again, the judge and counselors disappeared behind closed doors and emerged appearing satisfied. A private settlement had been reached between the DeSoles and A31. The trial was finally over. Some weeks later, Anne agreed to speak to the press. From the start, Friedman said, she had regarded the David Herbert collection as a, quote, puzzle to be solved. She had tried to extract more information from Glyphera every time Rosales arrived with another painting. Only with Rosales's confession had Anne realized how thoroughly and classically duped she'd been, or so she said. When you ask a con artist a question, they say, aha, I see what you mean, let me check it out. And miraculously, they have the answers, Anne recalled. She called herself a perfect mark and added, I have never deliberately done something wrong, which is to say, knowingly. But then she added a jarring remark. I am terribly sorry for anybody hurt or damaged, but let me be clear. This is about works of art. I didn't slay anybody's firstborn. We have to have some perspective on suffering. Or, as a sympathetic historian apparently told her, we all need to get over it. More art fraud in a minute. In any sport, there are leaders and journeymen. Oh, what a finish by Jess McDonald! But on this season of Longshot, there's no story quite like Jessica McDonald's. I ran away from home when I was 17 years old. My recollections are mostly uh, trying to find her. I wasn't just scared. I was scared for my life. On Payback, the Charlotte Observer, Raleigh News and Observer, McClatchy Studios, and iHeartRadio share, for the first time, her story. She's had some very difficult moments in her life, but there's something inside the great athletes that is why they're great. Thank God for sports. That was my escape. And then I find out I'm pregnant with my son. An incredible journey to the pinnacle of sports. That's it. U.S. wins their fourth World Cup. I need to show an example for my son. That's what inspires me day in and day out. Payback, coming March 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. McDonald again. 
sending a message. Anyone, anywhere in the world, I can get you and it will hurt. It was a plot straight out of James Bond, an assassination carried out with the world's most toxic chemical weapon. The victim was Kim Jong-nam. He was the firstborn son of North Korea's supreme leader. He should have been the successor. Instead, he'd be murdered in one of the most brazen and bizarre political plots of all time. Join us as we investigate the potential motives. Kim Jong-un actually had several reasons for wanting to assassinate his older brother. The family backstabbing. There's a lot of cloak and dagger stuff about Kim Jong-un. And the petty paranoia. In North Korea, when somebody challenges you, that challenger must be eliminated. Behind the most audacious assassination of the 21st century. Listen to Big Brother on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Look through your children's eyes to see the true magic of a forest. It's a storybook world for them. You look and see a tree. They see the wrinkled face of a wizard with arms outstretched to the sky. They see treasure and pebbles. They see a windy path that could lead to adventure. And they see you, their fearless guide through this fascinating world. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. The DeSolo's lawyers felt pleased they'd gotten their clients the outcome they wanted, but the settlement allowed Friedman to crow. Anne declared she would have gladly had the trial go on and was sure the jury would have found her innocent, if only on a technicality. The DeSolo's lawyers roll their eyes at that. Things got resolved before the jury got to reach its verdict, but... You know, we did speak to the jurors afterwards. They were completely convinced that she knew exactly what she was doing. Despite the fact that a jury never actually ruled on the case in court, the DeSoles and their lawyers saw the outcome as an overwhelming victory. I think that you're looking, maybe you're suggesting that you need a verdict to prove your story. I don't think so. I think you need to tell the story and put it out there to show what happened. And they did 100% of that. Right. And it's not a coincidence that the five cases that were pending, you know, at the time we settled, also all settled. And no one went to trial. You know, I, I'd say, you know, Nodler and, and Friedman, and Friedman didn't step up to defend themselves and go to trial on any of those five cases that followed. The rulings made it crystal clear that, you know, collectors have the right to reasonably rely on reputable galleries and that it's the reputable gallery's obligation to come forward with what they know and what they don't know about works that they're selling. Anne's attorney, Luke Nikas, felt the settlement only confirmed the case that he'd argued. Not only was she not prosecuted, but when the superseding indictment came out, in which Glafira Rosales had told her story to the federal government. It was clear from that indictment that Anne was not implicated at all in the underlying crime. Glafira had every reason to throw Anne under the bus. Her boyfriend had every reason to throw Anne under the bus. The painter did, everyone did. And at least from that superseding indictment, it was clear they didn't. And when you look at all of the information, not just pieces of it, and you put it together and you ask, did Anne believe these works were fake at the time? I just don't think you can get there. You can say she made mistakes, but the prosecutor needs to prove beyond that. And I don't think they could. 
It had now been three years since Glyphira was arrested. Three birthdays, three Christmases out on bail, nervously awaiting her sentence on nine federal charges. During that time, Rosales had broken no laws and had helped prosecutors to the extent that she could to track down the Bergantinos brothers. They remained at large due to Spain's changing extradition rules. In weighing her sentence, Judge Fayala had listened to Glafira's story of physical and emotional abuse at the hands of Carlos and found it credible. As Jason Hernandez suggested, the judge had seen a culprit left holding the bag while the rest of the ring went free. Enough was enough. In January 2017, the judge sentenced her to time already served, 82 days. Glafira was a free woman. She was also broke. Their lives are very difficult because everything that they had could be traceable to, you know, their art business, which was uh, fraudulent uh, or infected with fraud. So everything was seized. Their home was seized. All of their money was seized. All of the art was seized. And so Glafira in her late 50s had to build herself back up. So she now works um, part-time as a hostess in a restaurant in her 60s and as a waitress from time to time. And Soli is involved in the art business and is building her own business and knows how to do it right and is supporting her mother. And so you have the story of a daughter supporting her mother and their father is still very much very antagonistic. Carlos is very antagonistic, but he's, he's off in Spain. The government, as you probably know, tried to extradite him and was unsuccessful in doing so. The fall of the Nodler Gallery would have rippling effects throughout the art world. Gretchen Diepenkorn described the seismic shift in trust between client and gallery. I think it's terrible for the art market. For example, right after the first revelations and the New York Times story, the dealer, our current dealer, began getting phone calls about, oh dear, did the, is the work that I bought, is it real? Uh, and it wasn't only our dealer, it was others. And then all of the dealers are under suspicion now because it's never been a field that has seemed entirely squeaky clean. Anyway, because things happen, you know, people get better, one person gets a good deal, the next person doesn't, and they're, they're mad, and so, I mean, nobody trusts anybody in this kind of world anyway, in some way, but this made it a hundred times worse. David and Pham didn't hold back in his blistering opinion of the Nodler scandal. In hindsight, I think the whole Nodler story will go down as one of the worst scandals of its kind. Indeed, probably the most shameful farrago in the annals of modern art. What could prove even more interesting is the verdict of history upon whoever it regards as being at the epicenter of this sordid saga from first to last. Having followed the fall of the Nodler Gallery from the first revelations of forgery through the trial and the half-dozen settlements, 
I'd come to realize that this case was far from a once-in-a-lifetime phenomenon. As we've heard from countless artists, dealers, and collectors, the art market has been and remains a target-rich environment for con artists willing to risk prison time for a big score. There's the fascinating case of Inigo Philbrick, a young and charming London-based dealer who oversold fractional shares of works by hot new artists in a Madoff-like Ponzi scheme. There's also the case of aging artist Robert Indiana, creator of the iconic Love Works, whose coterie of assistants on an island off the coast of Maine would be accused of squeezing windfall profits from him, going so far as to employ an automatic signature signing machine. Finally, there was my own brush with art fraud, in which a painting I purchased from an artist I adored through his longtime dealer Mary Boone would end up pitting us against each other in a bitter legal battle I never could have anticipated. We'll talk about all of those cases in our final episode of Art Fraud. Art Fraud is brought to you by iHeartRadio and Cavalry Audio. Our executive producers are Matt Del Piano, Keegan Rosenberger, Andy Turner, myself, and Michael Schneerson. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and Zach McNeese. Zach also edited and mixed this episode. Lindsay Hoffman is our managing producer. Our writer is Michael Schneerson. everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I'm back with a new season of my podcast, Next Question. I'm bringing you some really meaty conversations about important topics like how to support working moms who are at their breaking point, what's being done to help long COVID sufferers, and where can women turn when they fear they might have a drinking problem. I might even dive into the metaverse, whatever that is. Subscribe and listen to Next Question with Katie Couric on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love true crime podcasts, you need to check out True Crime Obsessed. Each week, hosts Patrick and Jillian recap a true crime documentary everyone is talking about, and they do it with humor, heart, and just the right amount of sass. When you go camping, you either find the skull or you become the skull. That's the rule. Patrick and Jillian have covered everything from the Ted Bundy tapes to Lula Rich with plenty of art heists in between. With over 100 million downloads and 30,000 five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, True Crime Obsessed is one of the most popular true crime podcasts in the world. Find True Crime Obsessed wherever you listen. I'm Emmy Olea. On this podcast, I'm taking you on a search, a search for love. Emmy, 24, hardworking Latina. But there were other reasons I felt like I couldn't always be myself. 
My mom's in prison. This is Crumbs, my love story. It's a show about the things we settle for and the bits of ourselves that make us who we are. Listen to Crumbs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.